Hey, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the 14th session in this exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. Tonight, we are going to cover the quest of Erebor as it appears in the volume of uh, Unfinished Tales. We're also going to discuss some Hobbit Q&A, some outstanding questions from our discussion of the Hobbit, outstanding, I should say, in both senses of the word. We're going basically tonight to wrap up our discussion of the Hobbit. Next week, we're going to launch ourselves into the Lord of the Rings with the prologue of the Fellowship of the Rings. So in a sense, we're, I don't know, a quarter done right? With, with the, the study that we're undertaking here in There and Back Again. That, of course, isn't really true. We're going to spend much longer with The Lord of the Rings in the company of Frodo and the Fellowship than we, than we have with Bilbo and Thorin's company. There's still a lot left to discuss, but this marks an important milestone, in part because this marks the transition from The Hobbit, a novel intended primarily for children, into Tolkien's more adult work, into his more ambitious work into, I think, importantly, his more true and authentic work. This is the turning point for all of us here in There and Back Again, and it's a pleasure to have you all with me here tonight. Uh, Mary is with us, and Errol is with us, and Robert is with us, and Angela, and Sarah, and Jean, and we're just guys. It's, it's an all-star show here tonight in the YouTube chat. I also, since our last discussion together, have started the uh, the Point North Discord channel. So if you are a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, you now have access to the Discord channel and you can chat there. I have that here on the side of the screen and you can also tweet at me using the hashtag tab again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. I laugh because of course this is ridiculous. I'm trying to keep up with three simultaneous conversations while also trying to, I don't know, what's it called, do a show. So by all means, ask questions here in the YouTube chat, ask questions in the Discord channel, ask questions on Twitter, and I'll try and get through as many as I can. I've got a uh, an interesting selection of questions to get to right at the end of the session. We're going to talk a little about eucatastrophe and dragon sickness, of course. We're going to talk about why it is that dwarves die so goddamn always. And we're going to talk a little about Bilbo and about his role in the story, inspired in part by the discussion we're going to have, first of all, about the quest of Erebor. J.R.R. Tolkien died in 1973, but there was still such an appetite for his work, such a, such a fierce love of his work, of his secondary creation, that uh, his son Christopher undertook the task of preparing basically the rest of his father's work for publication. As many of you may know from studying Tolkien's life and his process, his, his creative process, he was a notorious procrastinator. He would begin versions of stories, get a couple of chapters or a handful of pages in, then start the whole thing over again, oftentimes after a long break. So there are multiple versions of pretty much everything that Tolkien ever wrote, and yet he didn't finish that many manuscripts. So Christopher undertook this task, and he began with, of course, The Silmarillion. That was the first of the, the post-Tolkien Tolkien books. The Silmarillion is effectively a history of the world of Arda from the perspective of the elves. In that sense, it is crucially distinguished from basically all the rest of Tolkien's writings. He didn't write that much, really, from the perspective of the elves, and much of it is collected within the pages of the Silmarillion, which was published in 1977. This was an immediate success, and it was followed up with, followed up by, if you'll excuse me, uh, this volume, Unfinished Tales, which was published in 1980. This collected 
fragmentary uh, manuscripts. These are pieces of stories, more often than not, which are have been edited and collated. And there is, a, if you get uh, the, the actual volume of Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth, you'll see some insight into the editing process, into the collation process there. This was such a success in 1980 that it inspired the 12-volume series, The History of Middle-earth, in which Christopher Tolkien effectively published everything his father ever wrote. More or less, that's how it worked out. Everything that was uh, at least uh, Lord of the Rings related, Middle Earth related, Arda related. That 12 volume series is a fascinating study in not just Tolkien's world, not just Tolkien's secondary creation, but the process of revision for which Tolkien is is so well regarded. This is a man who, who was able to revisit the same story, to retell the same story again and again. And as I've said before, this speaks to his medievalism, effectively. This speaks to his his belief that stories are, are living creatures which, which survive and thrive in part through the retelling. So these books, the 12-volume the History of Middle-Earth series, really gives us a profound insight into his revision process, into the way that he wrote, the way that he thought about stories, and the way that he would revisit stories at multiple points through his life. He could write a story in 1915 and then revisit it three or four times, and then ultimately never finish it. You know, there are so many unfinished manuscripts, so many unfinished poems, so many valiant, valiant efforts that just went from because he would move on to something else. In part, we can blame Tolkien's schedule, I think, as a don at Oxford for some of this, this, uh, some of this fragmentary uh, rewriting schedule for, for, for his approach to, to retelling stories, because, of course, during term time, he would be consumed by his teaching. And then the break would come, the winter break, the summer break. It would roll around and he would have this space in which he could write. But rather than returning to something he had previously worked on, oftentimes he would just start over. So the history of Middle-earth is fascinating. Unfinished Tales is fascinating. The Unfinished Tales was published, the 12 volumes, between 1983 and 1996. Since then, Christopher has also compiled two further books, The Children of Hurin, which is the, the story of Turin Turambar, is basically the, the most tragic, grim story in, 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 um, in elven history within the frame of Arda. Um, and of course, the tale of Baron and Luthien that will be published later this year, which is perhaps the greatest story in the history of Middle-earth. Uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to Baron and Luthien, you guys. It's coming out, I believe, June 1st. It was supposed to come out in May and then it was pushed back. So I'm really looking forward to that volume. And when that comes out, there will almost certainly be at least one special lecture dedicated to that book. But more information on that as we get closer to it. So... The quest of Erebor from the Unfinished Tales is basically a reframing of the events of The Hobbit from the perspective of Gandalf after the crowning of King Elasar, which about whom we shall say no more, I guess, for, for right now. Um, this is a story that Gandalf is telling to Frodo and his companions um, around the time of the end of The Lord of the Rings, and it it just demonstrates beautifully what a master of revision Tolkien really was because it doesn't change anything in The Hobbit. It doesn't retcon anything in The Hobbit. There are no forcible intrusions within the narrative frame of The Hobbit contained within the quest of Erebor, but nonetheless, it completely redefines The Hobbit's context. It completely redefines our understanding of what is happening. 
I should say, as Christopher mentions in Unfinished Tales, uh, there are basically three versions of the quest of Erebor. There's also some attendant material. I was going to discuss uh, the part of Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings, which is relevant to our proceedings here this evening, but it's it's swift and it's a little it's a little superficial. There's not a great deal to be gained from it. So rather than discuss that, we'll, we'll postpone that to our discussion of the appendices after we're done with The Lord of the Rings about 14, 15, 16 months from now. Let's wait and see. I don't know. I'm holding my schedule better for uh, for there and back again than I am for my current American Gods seminar, Storms on the Way, in which I've discovered that actually covering Gaiman swiftly is not a task for the faint of heart. So I'm giving up and I'm just going to cover Gaiman slowly. Instead, we're going to spend a lot of time with American Gods, apparently, which is fine because that's a really good book. Um, you can find that seminar series, Storms on the Way, over on Point North Media, of course, where you can find all of the podcasts that I produce. So there are three versions of the Quest of Erebor referred to within the pages of Unfinished Tales. And Christopher basically gives us the full manuscript for version C. That's the version that you will have read followed by some attendant material, primarily from version B, much of which was cut during revision. So we're going to focus on the main text. We're going to focus on version C. If there is anything in that in that accompanying text that you would like me to discuss, then just chat out about it because uh, there is some interesting stuff in there, but it is of, hmm, God, it's so difficult. I was going to say it's of questionable or dubious canonicity, but of course that is true of all of this material. Is this canon? Well, Tolkien wrote it, and he clearly intended it, and it absolutely supports our read of The Hobbit, so I have no problems declaring this canonical, but where this pseudo-extra-canonical material conflicts with itself, I genuinely don't know which way we're supposed to lean. I I don't know where we're supposed to to incline our belief in that particular regard. So we're going to read version C, not all of version C. I have some slides from version C of the story. And then we'll see if there's anything that that jumps out at you from the earlier versions that we can talk about that too. Let me see. I've got... um, Wow, a lot of chat here. I've got a lot of people here with me tonight. I'm so glad you guys are all here. Barbara says, Turin, so awful. Fair enough. Errol the Young says, Baron and Luthien, best love story ever. Errol, I am inclined to agree with you. The story of Baron and Luthien is is beautiful, is heartbreaking. We're going to touch upon that in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and then I think, yeah, as I said, at least one special session on on the new book uh, telling the tale of Baron and Luthien. Yes. Um, uh, Gene says we should definitely do some Patreon and or public one shots on some of these things, maybe even his Beowulf or non-Middle Earth writing. I would absolutely love to. I would absolutely love to. I'm going to touch a little on um, a little on some of his non-Middle Earth writing tonight, in fact. And we're going to touch a little, too, on uh, some of the material contained within the early chapters of the Silmarillion. I've been promising a discussion of Ali and Yavanna. I'm not going to get to that discussion. That is still somewhere in our future. I, I still want to do that. And yes, let's face it, there has been at this point, I think, enough support for the idea of continuing there and back again onward into the Silmarillion. We'll see how that works out, but I'm definitely open to the idea. The Silmarillion is dense. That may be, gosh, another six months worth of of study here in, in your esteemed company. So I can ask for nothing more than that. I think we'll probably tack that on to the end of the seminar series. We'll see how it all works out. Yes. Um, Oh, to-do list 411 asks, random question, did J.R.R. Tolkien sing any of the songs he wrote? Yes, he certainly did. He There are recordings, in fact, of, of Tolkien uh, singing some of the songs that he wrote. Um, they're interesting. Um, I generally find that Tolkien's poetry works better as poetry than it does as song. Um, 
I'm generally somewhat less convinced by the arrangements, though there are some some exceptions to that. There are numerous, in fact, exceptions to that. I have heard beautiful versions of the arrangements. And you don't need to look any further than the Peter Jackson movies, actually. There are a number of examples throughout those films where certain versions of, of the songs have been put to music, which is absolutely effective. I completely love the version of Misty Mountain's Cold that we get in the first Hobbit movie. It is, it is every bit as chilling and profound and inspiring and wondrous and also subtly, treacherously dark as you would want it to be. So, yes, there are some successful versions of that. I think you can find those on YouTube, actually. I think if you just visit YouTube and search for J.R.R. Tolkien's Sings, you probably find something, right? Plus, of course, we can't overlook The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy. Um, yay, American God. Slowly, I, you guys, you're so chatty tonight. I'm, I'm having trouble catching up here. Um, I'm about to play a bard soon in a new D&D game, says Princess Ostrich, and I'm a little bit tempted to play her a little bit Luthien, but I'd probably rather go both. Um, playing Luthien would be hard in that Luthien is literally textually the most perfect woman ever created. So it would be a little tricky, but certainly if anyone can do it, Princess Ostrich, I'm certain that it's you. So by all means, go forth. Yes, good. And as as uh, Jackie Boatman calls out here, the Tolkien's headstones. Yes, when uh, Tolkien's wife died, he inscribed upon her headstone Luthien as a testament to exactly that quality that I just described. And then when Tolkien himself died, his children inscribed upon his headstone as he was buried next to his wife, Baron. This is a love story for the ages. I'm not going to go any more deeply into Baron and Luthien because as I said, we're going to have our opportunity in uh, a month, in six weeks, maybe, maybe two months, maybe we'll give everyone a chance to read it. But certainly before the end of the summer, we will talk about Baron and Luthien in some depth. Yes. Uh, let me see here uh, Chesley asks wow this is a really interesting one that has superficially nothing at all to do with Tolkien and yet and yet and yet absolutely speaks to Tolkien um Chesley asks here in the YouTube chat I would love to hear Alistair's opinions on Disney non-canonizing the Star Wars extended universe hint hint wink wink Prior to The Force Awakens, Disney swept away all of the Star Wars expanded universe material. Um, dozens, if not hundreds of novels, dozens, if not hundreds of comic books, role-playing games, source books, so much material that was quasi-canonical for Star Wars has now been deleted. These now exist only as, I guess, the, the official line is that these are now myths within the Star Wars universe, which is... Not quite what you would want, but okay, that, that's an approach you can definitely take, I guess. Um, it's fascinating because that is exactly the kind of thing that Tolkien never did. Tolkien would never have discarded an earlier version of the story. He would have found a way to frame it. He would have found a way to, to explain it away, as he did when he revised The Hobbit in the 1960s. Prior to the publication of The Lord of the Rings, he went back, as we've discussed before, and, and edited Chapter 5 in particular, but also there were numerous other edits through the rest of the book. He went back and basically changed the Riddles in the Dark chapter to more accurately reflect the story as it would continue to unfold in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. He wanted this to be the ring of power at this point, rather than simply Bilbo's awesome magic ring. So he made that change, but he didn't discard the original version. The original version is preserved as the version of the story that Bilbo tells the dwarves after immediately escaping the Misty Mountains. So this idea of, of stories being told and retold, of, of better stories eclipsing less effective stories. This is vital to Tolkien's understanding of the narrative art. Disney, of course, is under no obligation to, to follow in that example, to, to, to try to mimic the professor in that regard. And okay, honestly, I wouldn't even know where you could start with the expanded universe of Star Wars, but it is 
crucial, I think, for us to understand, uh, particularly as we move through Unfinished Tales. I, I don't know how many of you have read Unfinished Tales cover to cover. I don't know how many of you have picked it up and read simply the Quest of Erebor. I don't know how many of you have found the Quest of Erebor online or, or perhaps haven't even read the Quest of Erebor and are looking for a breakdown, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But uh, I, I think it is important always to understand that Tolkien's commitment to his, the, the integrity and the, the comprehensivity of his secondary creation was absolute. He would discard almost nothing. And, and even when he was making changes, even when he was retconning, which I, I think maybe someone asked in the YouTube chat what a retcon is. This is retroactive continuity. This is when a subsequent story changes a previous story. So, for example, we might discover that... Um, trying to think of a comic book example because most of these examples come from comics that Tony Stark fought in Korea, that, that, that it was during the Korean War that he created the Iron Man armor. Well, okay, fast forward 40 years and now it's not Korea, it's Iraq. That is a retcon. That is a specific contradiction of an earlier detail. We change history to accommodate this new story. Tolkien didn't, broadly speaking, retcon. He revised and he folded those existing stories into the ever-expanding corpus of his, his legendarium. Yeah. Um, it didn't connect. says, wait, I have to read for this seminar? I mean, a little. Just, just a little. We don't cover that many pages. It's pretty good. Uh, Kate asks, would a Silmarillion adaptation work better as a series of long episodes a la Sherlock on Netflix or Prime? A Silmarillion adaptation. Oh, that, that's not easy. That's not easy, Kate. Um, adapting the actual Silmarillion would be all but impossible. Uh, adapting the story of the Silmarillion would be extraordinarily difficult. And I should say that uh, the fantastic Corey Olson, to whom all lovers of Tolkien are indebted, the Tolkien professor, has been running a project now for a couple of years, which is called the Sim, the, <laughs> the Silm Film Project, wherein he and his listeners are effectively doing a free adaptation of the Silmarillion for a TV show that will never exist. They are uh, unrestricted by, you know, actual commercial concerns. They're trying to adapt to this story and to, to weave together those threads. That is a really interesting listen. So you should, and of course, I'm certain that you all have already checked out the Tolkien professor on iTunes. I can't recommend it highly enough. Corey Olson is, is a genuinely great Tolkien scholar, a genuinely great thinker, a genuinely great communicator and, and teacher. He communicates with enormous passion and, and selflessness and has an insight on Tolkien that is, that is matched by very, very few people. So I, I can't recommend his work highly enough. And if you're interested in the adaptive process for the Silmarillion, then by all means, go and check out the Silm film project on the Tolkien professor feed. Um, let me try and catch up here because, of course, yes, Barbara says the Tolkien Professor's film film is so much fun. I am so far behind. I am, good Lord, hideously, hideously, hideously behind. I might still be in season one of some film, and I believe that they are either approaching or ending season two, which is like a six-month process. So, yes, but but certainly I'm loving it. Yes, good. Um, oh, okay. I don't want to get too far off on this. To-do list 411 asks, Darth Vader is someone's father, would that count as a retcon? No, because it doesn't contradict previously established information. It is supplementary information, but unless there is a direct contradiction, then it doesn't technically count as a retcon. A, a retcon changes the detail of a previous story in a subsequent story. Yeah, good. Um, yes, Errol says, well, there are no actual intercharacter conversations for a big chunk of the Silmarillion, so actual dialogue would have to be made up, uh, would have to be made up and would have to be somehow consistent with Tolkien's dialogue, which is a pretty tough challenge. Yes. 
Good. Okay. Let's begin then, he said, 20 minutes into the seminar, with our first slide, with the beginning of um, of the quest of Erebor. As I said, this is version C. We're just taking the, the cold text here from this section of Unfinished Tales, and we're going to begin with the beginning of Gandalf's story here. I should note right now that Victoria Furiosa Wonk on Twitter says, I want a Baron and Luthien movie. Luthien especially is just badass. I would love that. Uh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm into that. Okay, so let's begin then with uh, the beginning of the quest of Erebor. He would say no more that day, but later we brought the matter up again, and he told us the whole strange story, how he came to arrange the journey to Erebor, why he thought of Bilbo, and how he persuaded the proud Thorin Oakenshield to take him into his company. I cannot remember all the tale now, but we gathered that to begin with, Gandalf was thinking only of the defense of the West against the Shadow. I was very troubled at the time, he said for Saruman was hindering all my plans. I knew that Sauron had arisen again and would soon declare himself, and I knew that he was preparing for a great war. How would he begin? Would he first try to reoccupy Mordor, or would he first attack the chief strongholds of his enemies? I thought then, and I am sure now, that to attack Lorien and Rivendell as soon as he was strong enough was his original plan. It would have been a much better plan for him, and much worse for us. You may think that Rivendell was out of his reach, but I do not think but I did not think so. The state of things in the north was very bad. The kingdom under the mountain and the strong men of Dale were no more. To resist any force that Sauron might send to regain the northern pass- passes in the mountains and the old lands of Angmar, there were only the dwarves of the Iron Hills, and behind them lay a desolation and a dragon. The dragon Sauron might use with terrible effect. Often I said to myself, I must find some means of dealing with Smaug. But a direct stroke against Dol Guldur is needed still more. We must disturb Sauron's plans. I must make the council see that. So immediately here at the beginning of the quest of Erebor, we are presented with a perspective that we never get within the pages of The Hobbit. Here we see an unfolding story. This isn't a simple fairy tale that is happening in a vacuum. This is a part of the long and tormented, tumultuous history of Middle-earth. We see here that the shadow is returning. At this point, Gandalf was already aware that Sauron, in his guise as the necromancer, had taken up residence in Dol Guldur in Mirkwood. And as he says here, Sauron could have put the dragon Smaug to terrible, uh, might use him with terrible effect. So we see immediately that the quest of Erebor, though it may have seemed a simple treasure hunt in the early chapters of The Hobbit, that that perception is a consequence of Bilbo's perspective and, to an extent, the dwarves' perspective, too. But Gandalf is always mindful of this bigger picture. I should say, too. Of course, this was written after the fact. None of this was intended when The Hobbit was written, or at least only the vaguest parts of it were intended when The Hobbit was written. But nonetheless, it fits as a part of our established canon, so we can happily and gladly accept it. You'll also see reference here right at the end to the council, to the White Council, the Council of the Wise. This is the the group of which Gandalf is a part. This is our Avengers of Middle-earth, effectively. So at this point, Sauron as the necromancer is gathering his strength in Dol Guldur and is about to lash out, possibly at Lorien, possibly at Rivendell. These could have been decisive strokes that would have brought the war to an early and calamitous end. But Gandalf is aware that 
he can be counteracted while he is still at Dogoldur. He can be challenged in his in his infancy, effectively, and and deprived the opportunity to attack Lorien and Rivendell outright. Action must be taken. And also, coincidentally, there is a dragon that we must deal with, too. And then we get to what is um what is um the the most perhaps eucatastrophic meeting in, in Middle Earth history. He happens to bump into Thorin Oakenshield uh at Bree on the fringes of the Shire. Uh Thorin has at this point we've been told been living in to the northwest of the Shire. He has just been out living by himself, scraping uh together a, a living after Smaug attacked the Lonely Mountain and, and drove the dwarves out. We're gonna talk a little more about the timeline of those events um later in tonight's session actually because I had a really interesting question about how this whole situation unfolded. Um so Gandalf runs into Thorin. Thorin tells him the whole tragic story. Gandalf has had at the back of his mind, hey, there's that Bilbo guy. He's in my head for some reason. That's interesting. And Gandalf says outright, I, don't, I didn't pull this for a slide, but I have the quote right here. Gandalf says, so I left him and the, the him in this instance is Thorin. So I left him and went off to the Shire and picked up threads of news. It was a strange business. I did no more than follow the lead of chance and made many mistakes on the way. Chance here in inverted commas, which speaks directly to the notion of luck, which speaks directly to this concept of intercessory grace and eucatastrophe. And it also throws forward to a quote that echoes through Tolkien like a bell, a quote that is now so common in pop culture, I would argue, that many people don't know that it comes from Tolkien, and many people certainly don't know that it comes from Tom Bombadil in The Fellowship of the Ring. Tom says, just chance brought me then, if chance you call it. And it is always tempting whenever a character in, in Tolkien's work says chance or luck or good fortune to follow that up with, if chance you call it, if luck you call it, if good fortune you call it. There is always this sense that something else is moving. I don't want to go too deeply into that because we're going to, to put a bow on our discussion of the Quest of Erebor by talking about luck in just a few minutes. But for now, it's important to understand that Gandalf is aware of the stakes and the stakes are absolutely dire. They have to take action now. They need a definitive strike against Sauron. They need somehow to deal with Smaug in Erebor, in the Lonely Mountain, and they need to do it now because if the shadow continues to gather his strength, then terrible things will befall all of Middle-earth, all of Arda, potentially. So from there, we um, we get an account of uh, the unexpected party, but we get this account from Gandalf's perspective, and we learn, in fact, well, that Bilbo's perspective, that Bilbo's account of this story is not perhaps quite true. This is what Gandalf has to say. But you know how things went, at any rate, as Bilbo saw them. The story would sound rather different if I had written it. For one thing, he did not realize at all how fatuous the dwarves thought him, nor how angry they were with me. Thorin was much more indignant and contemptuous than he perceived. He was indeed contemptuous from the beginning, and thought then that I had planned the whole affair simply so as to make a mock of him. It was only the map and the key that saved the situation. But I had not thought of them for years. It was not until I got to the Shire and had time to reflect on Thorin's tale that I suddenly remembered the strange chance that had put them in my hands, and it now began to look less like chance. I remembered a dangerous journey of mine ninety-one years before, when I had entered Dol Goldur in disguise and had found there an unhappy dwarf dying in the pits. I had no idea who he was. 
He had a map that had belonged to Jorin's folk in Moria and a key that seemed to go with it, though he was, far, he was too far gone to explain it. And he said that he had possessed a great ring. It turns out that the dwarf Gandalf met by chance, if chance you call it, in Dol Guldur 91 years ago, was Thryan. Father of Thor, uh, father of Thorin, son of Thor. He was at that point effectively the exiled king under the mountain, and he carried with him a great ring, a ring of power. We are going to talk about this when we get to the Lord of the Rings, of course, because that is the point at which the rings are themselves reframed. But for those of you who perhaps haven't read the Lord of the Rings yet, or for those of you who are unsure about the roles of the rings of power. Essentially, essentially, their history is this. Elven smiths in Eregion, led by the elf Celebrimbor, forged the rings of power, ostensibly for good. Celebrimbor himself forged the three elven rings, so they remained pure and uncorrupted are, and are, in fact, in use to this day, to, to the middle of the Third Age, to the end of the Third Age, as we're about to approach here. Sauron assisted with the forging of the seven dwarven rings and the nine rings of man, and they were imbued with his foul influence. If you have read The Lord of the Rings, if you are aware of the Nazgul, then you know what happened to the holders of the nine rings of man. But the seven dwarven rings worked a little differently. The dwarven rings, it would seem in part, excited avarice, greed, and something like dragon sickness. It is said that at the heart of every great dwarven horde, there was a ring of power. Sauron later recovered three of the dwarven seven rings over the years, and the remaining four were, we are told by Gandalf, destroyed by dragons. But the fact that Thryon was a holder of one of the rings of power should have immediately suggested to Gandalf that this old dwarf, though he couldn't remember who he was, was someone very, very important indeed, though of course it's not necessarily the case that Gandalf would have believed him. So what we see here is that Gandalf's good fortune has extended back into the past a significant way. 91 years ago, he was hanging out in Dol Guldur in disguise. Presumably, he was in Dol Guldur because the necromancer was already gathering his power, because he was already investigating, if not preparing for a move against Sauron. But at this, at this time, he runs into Thryon, the exiled king under the mountain. He gets given the key and the map, the prophetic, crucially prophetic map, and he carries them with him for nine decades. Until, by chance, if chance you call it, he runs into Thorin, who tells him the story of the Lonely Mountain. At this point, Gandalf wants to help Thorin and, and tries to recruit Bilbo because, well, we'll actually talk about why he tries to recruit Bilbo in just a second. But he tries to recruit Bilbo. Thorin is outright contemptuous, is, is outright appalled at the idea of bringing this soft hobbit with them until Gandalf remembers that he has the key, remembers that he has the map, gives them to Thorin, and actually buys some measure of trust, actually buys, in a sense, Thorin's loyalty here. This is good fortune heaped upon good fortune. So we'll talk more about the Rings of Power when we get to the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf gives Thorin the map and the key at the unexpected party, realizing at that point, and apparently not before, that it was Thryon and Dol Guldur, the revelation of the secret door is almost enough to do it. But then he has a conversation with Thorin. But that was not enough for me. I knew in my heart that Bilbo must go with him, or the whole quest would be a failure. 
or, as I should say now, the far more important events by the way would not come to pass. So I had still to persuade Thorin to take him. There were many difficulties on the road afterwards, but for me this was the most difficult part of the whole affair. Though I argued with him far into the night after Bilbo had retired, it was not finally settled until early the next morning. Thorin was contemptuous and suspicious. He's soft, he snorted. Soft as the mother of the Shire and silly. His mother died too soon. You're playing some crooked game of your own, Master Gandalf. I'm sure that you have other purposes than helping me. You are quite right, I said. If I had no other purposes, I should not be helping you at all. Great as your affair may seem to you, they are only a small strand in the great web. I am concerned with many strands, but that should make my advice more weighty, not less. I spoke at last with great heart. With great heat, excuse me. <laughs> Listen to me, Thorin Oakenshield, I said. If this hobbit goes with you, you will succeed. If not, you will fail. A foresight is on me, and I am warning you. A foresight is on me. It's curious to think of Gandalf being openly prophetic, and there is sufficient ambiguity in this account to question the nature of that foresight. Does Gandalf have an insight here? Does he actually have some kind of prophetic sense that it is somehow necessary for Bilbo to accompany Thorin? Or does he just believe that this would be best and is thus wielding his, his wizardly authority in order to persuade Thorin in somewhat mystical terms? Is Gandalf telling the truth that a foresight is upon him? Or is he lying? Either way, it seems completely necessary because at this point, Thorin is still unconvinced, and he's unconvinced too by the fact that Gandalf is not putting the quest of Erebor, this treasure hunt to the Lonely Mountain, right at the very top of his to-do list. As Gandalf says, no, there are other more important things in the world, and if there weren't other more important things in the world, I wouldn't care about you trying to get to Erebor and get back your treasure. This is a foolish quest. As we've discussed throughout our discussion of The Hobbit, it makes very little practical sense. But in the quest of Erebor, we see two vital pieces of information. We are given two vital pieces of information that reframe the quest completely. The first, Thorin is driven by a fury, by a passion, by a desire for revenge, by a desire for restoration. Thorin is not quite in his right mind. And much more importantly, Gandalf understands that it's a foolish quest. He doesn't even believe that they're going to succeed necessarily. He just thinks that they're going to distract both Smaug and ultimately Sauron so that he and the White Council can take more effective action. This is a beautiful piece of revision. It addresses really all of the concerns that we might have with The Hobbit, not as we're reading it, so it isn't a perfect piece of, of narrative patchwork, but it does at least acknowledge and, and reflect those problems with the original core text. And with this additional context, I think we can understand that The Hobbit as seen from Bilbo's perspective, the events of The Hobbit as seen from Bilbo's perspective, I suppose I should say, make more sense. They, they, they are more readily understandable because we have this sense of the broader canvas now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Princess Ostrich says, you're annoying me so much. Oh, wait, I have a foresight. You must do as I say. Yes, good, good. Um, <laughs> yes, next time someone questions my authority, says Kim Clark, I'm pulling that out. No, 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 I have a foresight. I absolutely must have a second sandwich. This is important. Trust me, trust me, trust my wizardly ways. I can tell you, yes, good. Um, Death of Glory Toad on Twitter says, Sauron does 
doesn't match standards of a Sashan boy of Magoth. Really seems he's capable and good at independent thinking. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll talk a little more about that. I mean, probably we'll talk a little more about that when we get to the Silmarillion, I guess, and we can kind of look at the hierarchy of evil um, in, in Arda. But yes, yeah, that's that's very good. Um, yes, making... <laughs> yes, good. We're, we're getting some criticism of, of enemies, of antagonists. They are simply evil as evil is. And yes, perhaps not uh, as subtle and sophisticated, but I do think that... <sighs> Sauron's intent is primal as Morgoth's intent was primal. It isn't really about a political agenda. It isn't really about even a theological agenda. It is about action. It is about disharmony. It is evil in a sense in the world of Tolkien is evil. Evil is as evil does. That in a sense, the desire to commit evil acts is sufficient motivation for evil creatures, though it also sows the seeds of their undoing. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, good. Okay. World domination says it don't connect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that is our discussion with Thorin, and we can see why Thorin was perhaps convinced at that point. Um, does Gandalf have a prophetic vision? Um, and I'm, I'm going to move on to discuss in a moment a question that I have received a few times, which is, okay, okay, it's fine to talk about intercessory grace. It's fine to talk about eucatastrophe. It's fine to talk about luck. It's fine to talk about the influence of the ring. It's fine to talk about the influence of the Arkenstone. It's fine to talk about 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 all of these different elements kind of contributing to this chain of, of, of cause and effect throughout the book. But, you know, pick a side. Is there a force? Is there a power in Middle Earth? There certainly is. Um, as I'll discuss in, in just a couple of minutes. I do believe that Gandalf has a foretelling here. I don't think that it's as clear as a prophecy. I don't believe that it is as powerful as an actual vision of events which will later unfold. I don't think it's as, as, as clean as the prophetic inscription on the map of the secret door, but I do think he probably has a sense. I do think that he probably has an understanding. And that may be nothing more than, of course, potential eucatastrophe working through Gandalf. You know, he, he is disquieted that may be the nudge that he needs to make this happen so that things can play out fortuitously later. He's been around for long enough and is wise enough to understand that that internal disquiet is probably representative of something. So there are ways of analyzing it, but yeah, I don't think he's lying to Thorin at this point. I think he actually has a, uh, he actually has a, uh, a sense at least that Bilbo is necessary. From there, we move on to, uh, to the last section, and, and this will spring us into our conversation about luck and uh, about luck and um, catastrophe here. Poor Thorin. He was a great dwarf of a great house, whatever his faults, and though he fell at the end of the journey, it was large, largely due to him that the kingdom under the mountain was restored as I desired. But Dian Ironfoot was a worthy successor, and now we hear that he fell fighting before Erebor again, even while we fought here. I should call it a heavy loss if it were not a wonder, rather than in his great age he could still wield his axe as mightily as they say he did, standing over the body of King Brand before the gate of Erebor until the darkness fell. It might all have gone very differently indeed. The main attack was diverted southwards, it is true, and yet even so, with his far-stretched right hand, Sauron could have done terrible harm in the north while we defended Gondor if King Brand and King Dian had King Brand, excuse me, and King Dian had not stood in his path. When you think of the great battle of Pelennor, do not forget the battle of Dale. Think of what might have been. 
dragon fire and savage swords in Eriador, there might be no queen in Gondor. We might now only hope to return from the victory here to ruin and ash. But that has been averted, because I met Thorin Oakenshield one evening on the edge of spring not far from Bree. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth. A chance meeting, a chance meeting you call it. This is the most outright expression of, of the importance of the quest of Erebor, of the events of The Hobbit. It isn't really about defeating Smaug. It isn't really about reclaiming the, the kingdom of Erebor. It isn't even really about restoring peace and civility and unity to that part of the world. It isn't about the undoing of the desolation of Smaug. It isn't about the unification albeit, you know, unification through alliance of the dwarves and the men and the elves of the woodland realm, what it is really about is the final battle. What it is really about is the war against Sauron after he departs Dol Guldur and retreats to Mordor. That is, by the way, what happens. For those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with the White Council, um, Sauron, <laughs> the phrase that we get, which is really, really interesting, is that when the White Council attacks Dol Guldur, the necromancer feigns to flee. He seems to, to run from this conflict, but actually it would seem purposefully retreats to Mordor. And we'll catch up with what happens to him there in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. So if not for this somewhat foolhardy, somewhat unimportant quest, if not for Thorin and company, if not, of course, for Bilbo, the world could have turned to ash and ruin. Things turned out about as well as they could, despite the death of Thorin, despite the death of Fili and Kili, despite all the hardship that Bilbo and the others endured, things turned out about as well as they could. And that is, of course, the recurring beat. Catastrophe comes, but is turned to good purpose. That is the heart of you catastrophe. So... That's the quest of Erebor. That's how it reframes our understanding of the events of The Hobbit. And I want now to move into some uh, general Q&A. Let me see. Um, <laughs> Gene says, oh, this is in reply to Jackie, who asks... Um, oh, Jackie is asking, uh, where did Gandalf hear about this? All of this, all of this story? Um this is some time after the events of the Lord of the Rings. It's not long at, well, not the entire events of the Lord of the Rings, I guess. Uh, this is sometime after the coronation. It's not entirely clear how long it is, but by this point, you know, our, our understanding of the new geopolitical situation in Middle Earth is, is clear. Now Gandalf isn't just speculating. He does seem to be actually recounting, um, recounting information as Lady Sorka says, maybe the Ravens flew down with news. Perhaps, perhaps this rush told him says Becca. Yes. Good. Um, excellent. Um, Yes, uh, Gene says, well, okay, that's, that's maybe a minor spoiler. I don't suppose it matters. This is being relayed to Frodo after Gandalf tells it to the hobbits, so it's in reference to Arwen. It's queen because the future queen lived in the north in the path of the dragon. Yes, Arwen would have died. Yes, this is, this is where we are. Um, good. Um, yes, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so many things. So many things could have gone awry. So many things could have gone horribly wrong. So many, so many things could have been... Have been um, God, could, could have turned to ruin and ash themselves, that, that ultimately the war could have been won only for it to have been lost. You know, the, the, old, um, <laughs> the old cliche about, you know, winning the war and losing the peace. I think that's, yeah, yeah. Um, also, eagles from Gondor, yes, good. Yeah. 
<laughs> Dylan the Joel says, Gandalf's perception checks always seem to land on 20s. Princess Ostrich replies, plus 38 demigod wizard modifier. At least, at least I would say, yeah, good. So much you catastrophe says it don't connect. Yes, and that takes us to our question. This was the, this is, I, I picked a question from Rebecca here, but this is absolutely emblematic of a number of questions that I received about the pages of The Hobbit. Rebecca says, you catastrophe, luck, dragon sickness, the influence of the ring, the power of the Arkenstone. There are a lot of things happening in The Hobbit which seem like coincidence or magic. You've talked about all of them, but I'm curious where you stand. Is there a greater power in Middle Earth? The answer is yes. We have looked at all of these things and kind of used each of them to explain moments in the text where something odd happens, something unaccountable happens. And we should be clear, this is not Tolkien patching up his storytelling. He draws our attention to the inconsistency. Think, for example, of, of Bilbo finding the Arkenstone. He is drawn toward it. His feet move of their own accord. When he picks it up and he weighs it in his hand and decides that this thing will be his, he closes his eyes before he puts it in his pocket as though he is denying the act itself. Bilbo is clearly under some kind of subtle coercion as he retrieves the Arkenstone. We've talked about the influence of the ring. We've talked about Bilbo's famous luck, this astonishing luck. We've talked about uh, prophecy, which Rebecca didn't actually include in her list, but the prophecy of the knocking thrush, at least, if not other prophecies too, besides. We've talked about the influence of the dragon sickness, that, that the dragon sickness works through Thorin and brings us to the brink of war between the dwarves and the men and the elves, the battle of three armies. That is disrupted only by the fortuitous arrival of the goblin and warg armies, uniting the, the forces of light into a final pitched battle for the future of Erebor. Everything works out perfectly, suspiciously, perfectly. Is this all you catastrophe? Is this all luck? No, I don't think so. I don't think that you catastrophe is the ultimate force in Tolkien's Middle-earth, even in the pages of The Hobbit, and we're, we'll tangle with this a little more explicitly as we move ahead into The Lord of the Rings and certainly into The Silmarillion. In The Silmarillion, we'll get a pretty definitive take, in fact, on what it is that, that's happening here. Um, but for me, it isn't just about luck. It isn't just about calamity being turned to good purpose, which is the specific you know, uh, definition of eucatastrophe. Rather, eucatastrophe and Bilbo's luck and the dragon sickness and the influence excuse me, the influence of the Arkenstone, the influence of the ring to the degree that the ring has an influence in the pages of The Hobbit. Um, all of these things seem to me to be reflections of something greater, something more subtle. These are tools which are put to good use by something, by a force of good in the world, by something which is desirous of the most positive outcome. We can think of this as God, certainly, <laughs> Tolkien, given his uh, given his theological you know uh, context, would have would have attributed this to God. We've talked about the ways in which eucatastrophe is an intercession of grace. That this is this is crucially an idea. The extension of of grace unasked for is is key to the notion of eucatastrophe. But yes, it seems to me absolutely clear that there is some kind of force for good working behind the scenes in Middle-earth, that something is driving this action forward, even the secondary action. So that's true of these tiny little instances of Bilbo's luck, and it's true at the grandest possible scale, that the driving of Sauron from Mirkwood, from Dol Guldur back to, uh, back to Mordor, the, the death of Smaug at the hands of 
King Brand, that these things are, uh, King Bard, sorry, excuse me, that these are, um, that these are examples of one unified, propulsive, positive, beneficial force within the frame of, of The Hobbit and ultimately The Lord of the Rings. And of course, I guess I can gloss this a little because I've, I've talked a little about the Anilindalay before. Um, in the Silmarillion, we are given the Elves' version of the myth of creation, wherein Iluvatar and the Valar, this is basically God and angels, that's that's not actually terribly specific or helpful, but, you know, because we don't have an hour to talk about the Anilindalay right now. Um, basically, God and the angels sing the story of the world. They sing the history of the entire world from beginning to end, and then it is created. Then we move down into the mortal frame, not quite into the mortal frame for the Valar, of course, but we move into the world. There is a sense of predestination. There is a sense of, of, of destiny running through the, the theological foundation for Middle-earth. And that, I think, absolutely speaks to this idea that, that things will turn out well, that things will will come along, you know? This actually um, speaks to, let me catch up on the YouTube chat here. Um, yes, Dylan the Joel says, currently reading A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, hearing how much of Middle-earth was invented in the trenches, given the role of you catastrophe in it is fascinating. Yes, I think that's, yes. Um, I'm always a little reluctant to engage in a biographical reading of Tolkien's work um, beyond the details of his creative process. Certainly, Tolkien's relationship with war, with his experiences in the Great War, have been enormously well documented. Uh, there's a lot of inference that can be drawn from those experiences, much of which is somewhat hollow. But yes, I think that when you're looking at this this absolute thematic level, when you are looking at at the most the most basic level, what forces are present in the world of Middle Earth? Then yes, absolutely, it is fascinating to note that 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 intercessory grace is a part of Tolkien's theology at this point, given his experiences in the trenches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Good. <laughs> Errol asks, Alistair, do you really think an Ina Lindley conversation would only last one hour? I think a few hours would be more realistic. Absolutely a few hours. It is what? Five pages, maybe six pages. The, the just the, the core Ina Lindley itself. Um, yeah. It would take us a long time to get through. It is beautiful. If you haven't read the Silmarillion, some of the Silmarillion um, can be very difficult to, to wade through. There are just so many names and, and, and so many relationships and so many proper nouns that you have to you have to deal with and kind of process. But the Aina Lindale stands apart as, as just, actually, probably my favorite story of creation um, in, in, in any fiction, in any theology ever. I love the Aina Lindale with my entire heart. It's, it's just lovely. Yes. Good. Um, let me see here. Oh, we're asking about Saruman. Um, what's the group dynamic of the White Council? Who leads? They're all such powerhouses. Uh, at this point, I believe, and my memory of the films may be clouding my memory of actual, you know, canonical Tolkien work. But at this point, I believe the White Council is primarily composed of Saruman, Gandalf, Galadriel, and Elrond. So those are your powerhouses right there. Yeah. The Silmarillion, says Lady Sorka, is sometimes like reading the begat chapters of the Bible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Good. Okay. Um, I think I've picked up most of this. It is true. An Ina Lindelay conversation would be fantastic. I'm sure we can do that at some point, too. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's... Uh, 
Here's a question, says Luke Hopkins. The map is weird, right? It seems like it was built for the story rather than existing as what it is. Like the author needed these things here for the plot and therefore they are. That's an interesting point, Luke, honestly. Um, mm. I mean, in, in part, I think that's completely true. Certainly the prophetic inscription is tricky. I don't know who would have written that prophetic inscription and under what circumstances. I'm still unsure about that. Uh, the, this is the uh, thrush-knocking prophetic inscription. Um, the actual existence of the map itself, I suppose, makes a certain amount of sense, particularly given the tangled history of the Lonely Mountain, because the Lonely Mountain wasn't always occupied. Dwarves settled in the Lonely Mountain and then left it. They departed it entirely to go to the Grey Mountains. Things in the Green Mountains did not work out terribly well for them. There was kind of a war between the dwarves and the dragons who dwelt there. So some of the dwarves returned then to Erebor. We're going to talk about this actually in just a little while. Um, so it is possible that this map is actually a relic of an older time when leaving Erebor for the last time, they composed this map to remind everyone, oh, hey, there's a secret door. Just, just FYI, if we ever need to come back, if we ever need to come back and, I don't know, there's some kind of dragon or something living inside the Lonely Mountain, then there's a secret door. It's cool. We can pass this on to our children and our children's children and so on and so forth. So the, the actual existence of the map and, of course, the key. We shouldn't forget about the key, too. But the existence of the map and the key doesn't bother me so much. I think that we can stretch to, to explanation there. The inscription is a little more, a little more complicated, a little more challenging. It challenges my understanding of it. Yes, um, yes. Predestination says uh, Death or Glory Toad says Robert here on Twitter. Predestination is a riddle for all save the writer of the riddle. It's impossible for creatures to conceive the creator's intent. Yes, predestination is tricky um, because clearly within the frame of Middle Earth. And, and also I would argue within Tolkien's concept of the frame of the real world, characters have free will. There is no story about Bilbo's heroism. There is certainly no story about Frodo's heroism or Sam's heroism without free will. If you are simply destined to succeed, then there's no tension there. There's no conflict there. This isn't an interesting and compelling story. And I should note, too, how many times we called out as we were moving through the pages of The Hobbit that Bilbo's good fortune was usually immediately accompanied by Bilbo's courage, that, that he would have an opportunity and then he would seize that opportunity. Things rarely just fall into his lap. When things do fall into his lap, it is eucatastrophic. That is the, that is the absolute calamity from which we are safe, from which we are redeemed by grace. That's the, the vital distinction between simple good fortune and eucatastrophe. But when Bilbo has good luck, he acts on it. He does the thing. We can think of him um, finding, the, finding the drunk elves, for example, in the halls of the Elven King and rescuing the dwarves. He has a moment of outstanding good luck. Luck so outstanding that the narrator calls it out basically three times in two paragraphs. It is such a prominent example of good luck, but it's not good luck that saves the day. If Bilbo hadn't taken action, then the dwarves would still be in the cell and Bilbo would presumably still be ghosting his way around the halls of the Elven King. That, that relationship between fortune and action is underplayed. It is, it is, it is de-emphasized by the, the, the prose of the story, but by the shape of the story almost, but it is absolutely vital. And I'm reminded of the works of Boethius, who was a Christian theologian who offered for me the greatest resolution to the riddle of, of predestination that I've ever heard. And it's so simple and it's so good and it's so true. And it's simply this. 
God does not exist within linear time. The creator, Iluvatar, does not exist within linear time. We exist within the world. So we, perce we perceive a past and a present and a future. We perceive cause and effect. But God in his creative, in his creative state does not. He sees all of history unfolding. Iluvatar hears the song, the entirety of the song, and knows what has happened, will happen, and knows every part of time in the creative act, during the creative act. So for him, there is no question of, of predestination. All these creatures in this story acted as they would. They acted freely, but all of those moments of time exist independently within the creative act. Thus, there is no conflict between free will and predestination. Thank you, Boethius, for resolving that. Yes. All right. I've spent a little too much time talking about predestination here, though it is fascinating. We are going to have an opportunity to talk about, uh, talk a little more about predestination, actually, when we get to the Lord of the Rings, too. Yes. Um, so many drinks tonight. Do I keep, do I keep uh, tripping up the, uh, the drinking game? Have I said good, good, good a few times? I can do that. It's good, good, good. Um, okay. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yes, Gene says, no, seriously, if you have not read The Constellation of Philosophy, you need to. I had it here on my desk perhaps yesterday. Uh, there is a, I will tweet about this afterward. There is, I want to say, a mid-90s translation of Boethius, uh, of, of the Constellation of Philosophy, which I just completely adore. This is a conversation between the, the author himself, between Boethius, the character of Boethius, who is absolutely despairing of the world and the manifestation of philosophy herself. And it, is, it basically takes the form of poetry and then a dialogue about that poem. And it is, it is beautiful to read. It is lyrical and elegant and, and, and engaging, but it is also, coincidentally, the best primer in philosophical and theological thought that you will ever read in your life. It is astonishingly subtle and precise and perceptive. It's, it's an absolutely great book. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Yeah. Good. All right. <laughs> I think it's you catastrophe that's tripping you all up here for the... Uh, yeah, it's you catastrophe that's tripping you all up here for the uh, the drinking game. There has to be a limit to this, right? There, there has to be a limit to it. Angela, remind me afterward, and I will definitely tweet the, uh, yes, I will tweet the, the specific edition that I have, and I'll, I'll show you the cover of the one that I have, which I'm surprised isn't actually still here on the desk. It's lovely. All right, let's keep moving on, because what I wanted to talk about, to kind of come back from this idea of predestination and, and creation, to kind of come back from this idea of of divine intercession to kind of come back from this idea that that the world is is on rails and things will just proceed as they're supposed to proceed and everything's going to be just fine you guys it's all going to be just fine i wanted to turn away from middle earth to tolkien's most allegorical story the the piece that tolkien wrote that is most like a piece that c.s lewis would have written um i'm talking of course about leaf by niggle a a an allegorical short story about effectively purgatory and paradise this is and also of course primarily about the creative act um this is a beautiful short story you can find it in the volume tree and leaf now which also contains tolkien's fantastic poem mythopoeia which is his argument for his defense of writing fantasy fiction. It's astonishing. So definitely go and pick up Tree and Leaf. You can also find the text of Leaf by Niggle online. But what I wanted to do was skip right ahead to basically the resolution of Leaf by Niggle, basically the thematic heart of Leaf by Niggle, which is right here on, um, on the slide, which I'm about to show you because I lost, I lost my button to share the slide there for just a second, but I found it again and everything's good now. 
So this comes from, as I said, Leif Beinegel. We have lived and worked together now. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. All the same, I am afraid I shall have to be going on. We shall meet again, I expect. There must be many more things we can do together. Goodbye. This is, you know, hey, no spoilers. The end of Leaf by Nigel, where he leaves purgatory behind in order to move on to paradise. And he is talking here with someone with whom he has had a contentious relationship in the past. But by working together, they have found truth. They have found contentment. They have found serenity. They have found, uh, I mean, a kind of faith. It's not an explicitly Christian faith. This is still an allegory, but it is a kind of faith in the creative act itself. But what I want to draw your attention to is that second sentence. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. This, it seems to me, is a vital part of Tolkien's theology, that the world itself, because it was created by a benevolent creator, is striving toward perfection, is striving toward apotheosis, that we are moving from the bad into the good. And that may seem like it sits uncomfortably at odds with Tolkien's you know, general suspicion of the modern world, general suspicion of technology, general suspicion of industrialization, general suspicion of, of progress in any sense. But there is still a sense that we may be on the wrong path. The, our, our shared communal culture may be on the wrong path. We may be entering a dark age. We may be entering a period of, 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 of desperation, of dissolution. We may be entering a, a period of despair. But ultimately, the world is going to arc toward the good. This does not mean that bad things are impossible. It doesn't mean that tragic things are never going to happen. It just means that ultimately, things could have been different, but they could not have been better. You only get to see that perspective from the end of the story, of course. So here, I think we get something of an explanation of Tolkien's perspective on, on a kind of, of divine intercession, a kind of, of divine guidance, a kind of predestination. I think that here we see a sense that, that for all the multiple paths that we could travel, th there are alternatives but ultimately we will walk the one which is best. Things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. That to me works out pretty well. I think, yes, uh, Death or Glory Toad, Robert has just shared here on Twitter a link to the text of, uh, a link to the text of Leaf by Nagel. It is very short. I will say you can, you can read it in a single, you can trivially read it in a single setting. Um, I will retweet that right now, Robert, so you guys can go and check. Um, Okay, I guess I won't because Twitter's being a little screwy right now, but I will definitely retweet it after the seminar is over and I rebooted my computer and everything will be fine. Um, that passage from Leaf by Niggle almost sounded like something Gandalf would say, says Errol the Young. Yes, yes, it does, doesn't it? Because though Leaf by Niggle is by no means a Middle-earth story, it still contains within it that, that, that heart, that soul, that spirit that defines so much of Tolkien's work. Yes, good, good. Um, yeah, Mariana says, there is a light and high beauty above it that no shadow can touch. Excellent. Good. Okay. But, but this really is, this really is, um, this must be matched with an understanding, and particularly as we're about to get into the Lord of the Rings. I cannot emphasize how important this is as we move into the Lord of the Rings. We must understand that Bilbo's luck is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That Bilbo's luck is not... Um, is not simple. It is not something that will, that will simply lead him from, from hilarious misunderstanding to, to hilarious misunderstanding, and he'll bounce his way through to the end of the story and everything will be perfect and joyous forever. No. Bilbo's luck 
is an opportunity, but it is anchored in action. Bilbo's luck does nothing, nothing at all to diminish his heroism, does nothing at all to diminish his wit or his insight or his courage or his, his, his morality. You know, the decision to yield the Arkenstone over to, to, uh, to the opposing force during the you know, siege of Erebor, as we discussed last time, that's maybe not the best decision that you could have made. That's maybe not the smartest call that you could have made. But it is absolutely true to Bilbo's character. So he has luck and he has skill in some measure. Yes. Good. Victoria says, my first boyfriend got me a copy of Tree and Leaf as a present. Best thing that came out of that whole six-month relationship. <laughs> a copy of Tree and Leaf could actually redeem a number of bad relationships. I, I, yes. Yes. Good. Jackie Bowman says, my husband has Bilbo's luck. It's ridiculous. I, I'm curious about the details of that, Jackie. I hope you're going to share more with us. Yes. Um, yes. Um, we're looking at, I want to track back to see if there was a beginning here. Um, because Tesla is reminding us that Philly and Killy died, uh, that nothing is perfect. No, no ending is perfect. No ending is complete. Tragedy does befall us. And of course, we're reminded again of the Annalindale that, that it is from sadness that we derive beauty primarily speaking. It is from, from grief, almost, that we derive the greatest beauty, because we have to have that delta of emotion before we can experience any emotion. So, yeah. Okay. Do we need the tragedies of Feanor and Hurin and children to, Feanor and Hurin and children, to balance out the idea of complete positivism in progress? Um, hmm, that's a really interesting one. I'm sorry, I should credit that. That was Shane Diener uh, in the YouTube chat who, who asked that question. That is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because yes, tragedy befalls many, many people. You know what? Let's, let's put a pin in that for now because we're going to circle back around to the dwarves and we'll talk about their tragedies in just a few minutes. Okay. Let's, um, yes. Yes, I, we're noting here too, the, as Lauren says, good point because Thorin almost had to die because he was really there for complicated reasons, but they didn't. And Sam says, didn't men get the gift of a short life? Yes. Yes, yes, because men do not belong in Middle Earth. Men are destined for a greater reward. Men are destined for heaven, effectively, because men have the kinds of souls that go on to heaven. Elves are immortal. Elves stay here. They live in. They live on in Middle Earth to one degree or another. The dwarves. You know what? Let's get to this question right now because I, I can circle back around to. Uh, to one of the other questions here, um, because this question came from the wonderful Angela, who is here in YouTube chant tonight. Um, she's talking about the number of dwarves who die, and basically it sucks to be a dwarf in Middle-earth, uh, and says, at the time, my answer was dwarves are too set and unchanging in their ways and or too prideful and arrogant about themselves in the dwarf nation, but I think there is more to it. They are the earth archetype of loyalty, steadfastness, solid and strong in their convictions, and Tolkien shows the distortion of that element with their arrogance, pride, conservative and unchanging natures, yet as craftsmen, they are the most industrious and possibly inventive. I would note there, Angela, that I think you're completely right, but that Tolkien wouldn't necessarily have associated industriousness and inventiveness uh, with, with completely positive things. He wouldn't necessarily have counted those as virtues absolute. We discussed a little in the middle of the book how we compare the dwarves and the goblins. The dwarves are better than the goblins, but they're not completely different from the goblins. There, there is a certain amount of crossover there, and there is the sense that, that goblins are simply dwarves gone bad. Dwarves kind of who have succumbed to their worst militaristic instincts. So I do think you're right. Industry and invention, possibly not unalloyed virtues in Tolkien's perspective of the world. 
Angela continues, the death of Thorin and Feely and Kili at the end of The Hobbit makes narrative karma sense. They pursued the treasure and fell under the dragon sickness, so it's fitting that they didn't inherit the throne. It's still debatable that Feely and Kili deserved that fate, but they deserve praise for their loyalty to Thorin at the end. And I do think that that's a way of reading it. Um, we did have some discussion about this, about um, about why Thorin is described as their mother's brother, why Thorin is, is hailed as their uncle, even though he is at the time effectively their king and why that primary relationship uh why, why that familial relationship takes precedence over the feudal relationship in this instance um i think that's really interesting it may be that it serves to to emphasize that primary loyalty that Philly and Killy are are of thorin in a sense that they are with thorin and that is what takes them to their death but Philly and Killy, at least we can be fairly sure get a good death they get a noble death they get a death that is uh, well okay Let's be clear, Thorin also gets a noble death. You know, he has, by this point, already abandoned his, his, his draconic ways. He is setting forth to, to, to fight the good fight. So everybody gets a good death, but nonetheless, they die. Um, Angela concludes here. So I turn the question to you. Why is Tolkien so hard on his dwarves? What is he saying about the dwarves? What do they represent in the overall picture of Middle-earth? Was it to show the arrogance that, excuse me, was it to show that arrogance and industry leads to destruction, or is there more than that? In order to understand this question, in order to answer this question, I think we have to think about the dwarves because the dwarves are completely unique. The dwarves are unlike any other creature on the face of Middle-earth. Um, the dwarves are distinct from men and elves and hobbits. Hobbits, by the way, like in the taxonomy, are basically men. Hobbits kind of occupy that space, though they are pulled out a little bit. They are more close to fairy than men are in some senses, but they are also more close to hmm, to a kind of steadfast civility than men are. So, so hobbits occupy a strange and somewhat unique space. But this is because dwarves were not a part of the vision of Iluvatar. Dwarves were not supposed to be. When the Ainulindalei is sung, when, when, when the creation is sung into being, the Valar are gathered and they, they know of the coming of the children of Iluvatar. They know that there are going to be elves and they know that there are going to be men and they're excited for this because, wow, how cool is that? There are going to be people walking around this world who can talk with us and can, who can sing with us and who can share their experiences. And dude, this is going to be fantastic. Let me check my watch. They're not here yet. They may not be here for, well, countless ages. Do we even know how to tell time at this point? Do we have any way of marking the days, marking the years? Well, no, not really sometime, someday, there are going to be children out there. And Ale, the great smith of the Valar, he is basically the, 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 the demigod of, of smithing and, and craft. Um, again, horrible. Don't ever repeat that. Don't ever tell anyone that I said that because that, that's not actually right. That's not, that, that's not true. But as a placeholder for the truth, it'll work well enough. Jerry Pratchett has this... <clears throat> Terry Pratchett has this notion of lies to children, lies dash to dash children, which is, this is a thing that is not true, but it encapsulates the truth in a way that is workable. It's, it's, it's a good enough truth. So if I say that Ale is the, the demigod of the forge, that's not true. It's kind of true. He's also kind of an angel. It, the Valar are a little more complicated because they're, they're not simply allegorical. They, they are, as you would expect from Tolkien, completely internally consistent. I'm getting sidetracked by all of this. Um, so he is patiently waiting for the elves to arrive. He's super excited about, uh, about the elves coming along and decides, hey, 
why are we waiting for the children to just appear? We could make them. I could make them. I'm super good in the forge. Here, let me create the seven dwarven fathers. Let me craft of stone these stalwart folk. These can be the children of Iluvatar. And Iluvatar learns about this. And Ale is forced to destroy his creations because that, that act of primary creation can only come from Iluvatar. He, can only, he is the one that can create effectively, right? This speaks to Tolkien's belief that God is the only creative force in the universe, but the refraction of God through us splintered that white light into many colors, as he writes in Mythopoeia, that, that when we create, we are creating in God's image, that we are kind of, we are kind of uh, acting as conduits for that creative impulse, so that when we write stories or, or make movies or, or program video games, that when we are creative, it is simply a reflection of God's primary creativity, that we ourselves embody no, no creative spark. We're, we're just conduits through which that creativity passes. So this is kind of the idea, is that Alay has created, in, in patience, he has created the children of Iluvatar, and Iluvatar says, nope, and Alay is about to destroy them, but Iluvatar relents, and he doesn't want to see the dwarves destroyed, so he grants them life of their own. The seven dwarven fathers are then kept deep underground until the awakening of the elves countless ages later. All of this is to say that elves are created to be here. Elves are of the world. Men are not. Men have souls. They are here for a little while and then go to their reward. And that is a thing of which we ought to be envious. The other races of Middle-earth ought to be envious of that. Do dwarves have souls? Are dwarves, <laughs> in a sense, real? Or are they simply created things? Are they little more, and it pains me to say it because God knows I love the dwarves in Middle-earth, but are they little more than, than automata? Are they little more than, than a, a facsimile, a simulacrum of the real children of Iluvatar? It is the absence of the dwarf's place in the song. It is the absence of the dwarf's primary purpose within the frame of Arda that I think leads to their frequent and premature death. Dwarves do die. Dwarves are killed outright. And, and more than that, dwarven history, even more than the history of men and the history of elves, it may be argued, is a history replete with tragedy, replete with warfare, replete with, with, with internal fighting and, 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 and conflict. Um, it, is, it is tough to be a dwarf in Middle-earth. And that may be because they were never really intended for Middle-earth. And I do think it's possible to look at that as a triumphant story, that this is a, a huge success, that this is something that, that was not intended and could never have been expected, but is itself an act of grace, that Ale creates from love. He shouldn't do it, but he does. And then Iluvatar relents and imbues them with life from love. He shouldn't, but, well, I, who's to say that he shouldn't? Whether he should or shouldn't, he does. I guess there isn't really a, a moral statement that can be associated with that that uh, that conclusion. But yes, it's. Um, I, I'm not sure, but we must remember always that less than the orcs, less than than less than any other race, less than than any other people of Middle Earth, even less than Tom Bombadil, less than, than, less than the ants, who are also, you know, tragic figures in, in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Less so than any other race on the face of Arda, the dwarves, you know, they, they do not belong. 
they they do not fit they were not intended and i can't help but wonder if there's something to that as well angela i do think you make excellent points about their industry about their their capacity for greed their capacity for for avarice they don't seem to be corruptible in the same way that men are they don't fail in the same way that men do but they do fail they do falter and that may be seen as an, an inherent weakness. Yeah, good. Um, Elves, dwarves, hobbits, says Robert on Twitter, all have a place in the histories of Arda. Man may have center stage because they have a place in eternity. That's beautiful. You're absolutely right. Yes. And hey, again, I know I've said this 35 times tonight. I hope this isn't a part of the drinking game where you'll all be unconscious by the time we're done. But again, we're going to talk a lot about this in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. All right. Angela, I really hope that helped. Thank you so much for an excellent question. That was an excellent, excellent question. Yes. Um, oh, Jackie says, Ali versus Iluvatar is like Abraham versus God. Y yes. Yes. It's, it's not, not that. Yes. Good. Um, and Errol the Young says, the dwarves are struggling to exist, exist in a world that were never met. They were never, oh my God. Now I can't speak. This is a terrible thing for a professional podcaster. Errol the Young says, the dwarves are struggling to exist in a world they were never meant to inhabit. We can draw inspiration from the fact that they make it work anyway. We certainly can, and that they create things of beauty. Yes. Good. <laughs> uh, Narnia says here to Princess Ostrich, now we, have the, uh, now we begin our reading of the Gospel of Alistair on the beginning of Dwarves, quote, Iluvatar said, nope, and thus smote them. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, uh, YouTube has just updated, and now I can't see the chat. Yes, Brandon asked, I joked earlier, but did Tolkien take the seven from the fairy tale? Um, no, no, he didn't. Um, uh, that was coincidence. Um, the early drafts of The Lord of the Rings were already in place. The, the seven were already in place long before there was a codified Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, he was actually... Um, he was actually wildly upset about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He found Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to be a, a, a terrible thing because it, it was so close to his work. It was so close to the release of The Hobbit and was not, I think, he considered a, a particularly worthwhile narrative endeavor to, you know, be as, as delicate as we can possibly be. Okay. I, I do definitely, and I know, I know I haven't mentioned Yovana. I will definitely mention Yovana, um, but not tonight. I will talk more about Ali and Yovana, if nothing else, before, uh, when we get to the, uh, when we get to the Silmarillion. Okay. Okay. That's that. I'm going to move back to the question that I skipped over to one of the two questions that I skipped over. Let's address this question. I've got maybe 10 minutes left. So let's, uh, let's try and, and quick fire two questions here. The first comes to us from uh, Tamara or possibly Tamara. Again, every time I say your name, Tamara, I, I never know how to pronounce it because, hey, I'm from Britain. Uh, Tamara asks, when I was a kid reading The Hobbit, I was disappointed Bilbo didn't fight the dragon. I was thrown because it's what stories are supposed to do. The hero is supposed to slay the dragon, right? When some random guy comes in and kills Smaug instead, it all felt anticlimactic from there. Rereading the story as an adult, I was still thrown when some unknown person comes in to do the main character's job. How do you feel about the structure of the story here? It's worth noting that in the original drafts for The Hobbit, Bilbo was supposed to kill Smaug. This was supposed to be a much more conventional fairy tale. Bilbo was supposed to identify the weak spot on, on Smaug's chest. He was supposed to identify the missing scale. He was supposed to stab him with Sting so entirely that the entire blade passed into his body and Smaug would then die in some versions of the story, Smaug would also gush so much blood that there would be a, an actual flood, a torrent, that Bilbo would, would survive by climbing into a giant golden cup and, and, and riding his way out like it's 
I don't know, like it's a really macabre version of the Cave of Wonders from Aladdin. This is just a really, a really bleak Gothic version of the Cave of Wonders from Aladdin. Um, it's interesting. You're, you're absolutely right, Tamara, that that is the shape of a fairy tale, that that is the shape of, of this kind of story. But when Tolkien decides, no, 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 this isn't going to work. Someone else has to kill the dragon. Someone else has to do it. You know what I should do? I should introduce this character. I should introduce this, this hitherto unmentioned character who is going to be, you know, the heir of Geryon. He's going to step up. He's going to do the thing. It's going to be great. I should introduce this character and have him do it instead. What happens there is, well, two things happen simultaneously. The first is that we are forcibly inserted into a story that has been unfolding all along, which we weren't previously aware of. Because if we get the story from the Lake Town perspective, then it's absolutely a classic fairy tale. This is 150 years ago, the great dragon came and destroyed the kingdom of Erebor and we fled Dale and now we live in Lake Town and it's kind of crappy, honestly. I mean, it's a town on a lake. It's not great, you guys. But then the heir of the old king takes up the black arrow and slays the dragon and times are good and... and, and Gold flows from the mouth of, of the, the lonely mountain, and we're all we're all set from here on out. Nothing but champagne and good times. That is a fairy tale. That is, you know, from the perspective of Lake Town, that's a classic fairy tale. It's kind of a farm boy done good story, but it's not the fairy tale that we've been following. So what happens here is that Tolkien gives us this pivot when we get to Fire and Water, and suddenly we're hurled into through you know forcible narrative intrusion. We're hurled into another fairy tale that's unfolding, and it relieves Bilbo of this tremendous burden, because Bilbo is our protagonist. Bilbo is our main character in a sense, but Bilbo is not a hero. By definition, Bilbo is not a hero. He does heroic things, but he is still. He's still Bilbo Baggins of Bag End. He's still part Baggins, part Took. He's still a very small person in a very large world. And that is a testament to his strength. By forcibly subverting our expectations here at the end of the book, Tolkien chooses instead to emphasize the thematic composition of the story. Bilbo's not great, capital G, great. Bilbo is obviously great, lowercase g, great, but he's not a champion. He's not a dragon slayer. That's not his story. He's just a guy with furry toes who likes to hang out and smoke his pipe. And he's going to be that going forward. And that is the root of his greatness. That is the root of his, his heroism. That is the root of his singular ability to change the world. This story would not have unfolded as it did without Bilbo here, but that doesn't make him a classic archetypal hero. Bilbo is always something very different. Again, these are ideas that we're going to see developed beautifully in Lord of the Rings. I, I, in, in a sense, in fact... That core notion that there are great people and there are small people, that core notion is the thematic heart of the Lord of the Rings too. And that, that the small can be great. You know, the small can accomplish things that the great, English perhaps doesn't have enough synonyms in this regard, that, that the small can accomplish things that the large cannot. You know, the weak can accomplish things that the strong cannot. The powerless can accomplish things that the powerful cannot. That definitely speaks to Tolkien's, you know, view on, on, on culture, view on society, view on life. That, that's pivotal to his perception. Yeah. Um, let me see here. 
uh, Troitel is saying on, um, yeah, Troitel is saying here on Twitter, uh, rereading The Hobbit, everything from Lake Town forward was a blur in my memory. Smaug's death was a shock to me all over again, but I once made a D&D setting that had a town on a lake with ruins on the shore, so apparently Lake Town was in my subconscious. We've all cribbed from Tolkien for D&D campaigns, I promise you. Yes. Yes. Errol says Bilbo is good. He is not a hero, as Gandalf says. He does, however, do great and heroic things. Yes. Good. And Chesley says Bilbo can make a killer smoke ring. <laughs> yeah, but, but it is it is weird. I mean, it is strange that we pivot away from Bilbo, that you're right. By that point, we have all of this narrative momentum. And it is strange that even in the revised edition, Fire and Water is such a hard break from the rest of the book. We just don't get any kind of introduction to this side of the story. Tolkien's, what must have been refusal to go back and seed the ideas of the heir of Geryon, to seed the idea of the Black Arrow into the earlier Lake Town chapters. It's not as though we've never been here. You know, we could have done this right there and then. We could have foreshadowed all of this and it would have felt more of, of a, a single piece. The inescapable conclusion is that Tolkien obviously wanted this to be discontinuous. He wanted this to feel as though we are being forced into a different story. And it is a different story that radically expands the frame of the novel and allows for the Battle of Five Armies. If not for the final, you know, death of Smaug and the burning of Lake Town. And I don't just mean in terms of the plot. Obviously, without those events, we wouldn't have had the Battle of Five Armies. But in terms of, of, of the, the expansion of scale... At that point in the story, we wouldn't be able to have the Battle of Five Armies because otherwise we're just left with the Battle of Five Armies strictly from Bilbo's perspective, which would have been a very different thing. We get to dip into Bilbo's perspective during the battle, but we're not limited to it. Instead, we can, we can move out and take this, this grander and larger and more epic view. But it is absolutely fair to say that the beginning of Fire and Water is a stark turning point in this book. It is the point at which The Hobbit starts to feel like The Lord of the Rings, which I think works for a lot of people. But at the same time, if you are in for the, you know, children's fantasy adventure of The Hobbit, if you're in for the story that you've been reading up to that point, it can absolutely feel like a betrayal and, and certainly a squandering of narrative momentum. Yeah, so I get that. I do think it's purposeful. It works pretty well for me. But yes, yes. As Chesley says, Bard's introduction almost comes after the dragon is slain. Yes, good. Good. Um... Errol asks, is Bard then a hero? Capital H. Is Bard great? Capital G. Yes, both of those things. Because Bard isn't just a hero and he isn't just great. Bard is a king and kings are inherently great. That does not mean that kings are inherently good, as we see from Thor and Oakenshield. Um, kings can be troubled. Again, you guys, the Lord of the Rings is going to be a masterclass in troubled kings. We're going to get two definitive perspectives on troubled kings, at least two definitive perspectives on troubled kings. Um, yes, Bard is a hero. Yes, Bard is great. Bard is not necessarily good. Bard is ultimately pretty good, even when he's under the sway of the dragon sickness. But yes, yes, that's, uh, that's a really great question and a really important question. As, as Kim Clark says, wars do not make one great. Hmm, someone should really use that in a movie of some kind. <laughs> good, okay. Yes, Bard's got the lineage, says Jackie. Absolutely, he's the heir of Geryon. It's not just that he's a dragon slayer, it's that he's, you know, the guy. Yes. Okay. Let's wrap this thing up. It's almost 9.30. I want to wrap this up with one last question here, which comes to us from Chelsea. Chelsea asks, I had a quick question about Thorin shutting out the men and the elves from the Lonely Mountain. Is it possible that some of his reaction is because he had seen the mountain get closed off to other races by his grandfather? I wasn't sure how much of the period before the dragon sickness struck, 
excuse me, I wasn't sure how much of the period before the dragon sickness struck he had seen, and if closing others out was what Thorin was most familiar with. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I really enjoyed the series so far. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I wanted to talk a little about the timeline of the Lonely Mountain, because as I mentioned earlier, the Lonely Mountain was inhabited by dwarves, and then it was abandoned and the dwarves went to the Grey Mountains. There in the Grey Mountains, they had some dragon trouble, and there was a calamitous war between the dwarves and the dragons. Eventually, the dwarves retreat from the Grey Mountains, and some of them go to the Iron Hills. You know, Dian and that line go off to the Iron Hills, and some go back to the Lonely Mountains. Some go back to Erebor. Um, uh, this is following King Thor. This is actually following Thorin's grandfather. So this is in the time of, of Thor. They move back to the Lonely Mountain in the year 2590 of the Third Age. This is Elven Reckoning. So 2590 of the Third Age. Smaug attacks in 2770, meaning that Erebor had welcomed back the dwarves. The kingdom under the mountain had had flourished alliances had been formed these compacts with with dale and the elves of the woodland realm had been in place everything was going great and then the dwarves had turned insular the dwarves had begun to retreat all before smaug attacks in 2770 so that means that that entire process happens in about 180 years which is you know a reasonable lifetime for a dwarf that's it's not maybe reasonable but it's it's not you know completely out of the question for dwarves to live just 180 years. So it, it happened really quickly. It is unlikely that there was a long period wherein the kingdom under the mountain was closed off, was insular. It seems as though that must have happened pretty quickly. It is worth noting, by the way, that Thorin was only 24 years old when Smaug attacked. So he was a babe in arms at that point. So he probably didn't have that much experience of anything. And certainly his experience of living in Erebor would have been completely comprehensively overshadowed by his experience of living outside of Erebor. You know, he has lived. Um, it is... Uh, the Smaug attacks in 2770, Bilbo and their company begin their quest in 2941, which means that it's been 170 years since the dragon attack, more or less, 170 years since the dragon attack. So Thorin lived for 25 years in Erebor, and now 170 years outside of Erebor. It's unlikely that he's going to have had his notions of kingship unquestioned for that time. Though it is really interesting that in the pages of The Hobbit, he neither offers advocation nor condemnation of that policy. We never really talk about the turning inward of the dwarves. It's all implicit. We were able to draw these conclusions because of what we hear in song and what we hear in story, but we never really get an account of it. So it's a really interesting question. I'm not at all sure. If I had to guess, it isn't Thorin following what he believes a good king should do. It is absolutely the dragon sickness. It is, or okay, if we want to be a little more specific, if it isn't outright dragon sickness, if you're not comfortable with dragon sickness as a phenomenon in the pages of The Hobbit, and I know that some of you aren't, it is at least his peculiar greed for the Arkenstone. It is his specific desire for the Arkenstone that has rendered him irrational, that has forced him into this, this path that has, has led to these, wow, just genuinely calamitous choices. Yeah. Or even then, ultimately, we can go all the way back and talk about, you know, this, this force for good. If Thorin has to be this guy in order to kindle the Battle of Three Armies, in order to lead to the Battle of Five Armies, in order to secure the North against Sauron's depredations later during the War of the Ring, then that's what's going to happen. So maybe he's not even responsible. Maybe this was just 
you know, the, the act of an unseen hand, just, just tweaking a puppet string there to, to make him conform to what he was supposed to do. I don't necessarily believe that it's that stark. I, I, I wouldn't probably phrase it in those terms, but there we are. Yes. Okay. That, I think, you guys will do it. Um, I'm scrolling back here to see if I have missed anything. Okay, if you have any questions, you can shout them out in the YouTube chat now. I don't know, put them in all caps or something so that I can see them so they can stand out from the general conversation. That would be fantastic. I am going to show you what we are doing next, though, because I am extremely excited. Next week, here on There and Back Again, we are going to be looking at the prologue of The Fellowship of the Ring. We're not actually going to be starting the story next week, because we want to talk about this prefatory material. We want to talk about everything that comes before the story, and I want to talk a little about uh, about some, some, some biographical context. I want to talk a little about Tolkien writing the Lord of the Rings and the fact that it took 20 years to write, the fact that it went through multiple, multiple revisions, the fact that it started out very simply as a sequel to The Hobbit and, and took on a greater and greater and greater life of its own. I think it would be interesting to do that. So we'll look at the introductory material and we'll also look at, at Tolkien's life and we'll maybe take some questions about The Lord of the Rings too. And then the following week, we'll actually get into the first two chapters of, uh, of, the, of the Fellowship of the Ring. I can't wait to get to it. I almost said of The Hobbit. That would be going backwards. We probably shouldn't do that thing. So next week, 9 p.m. Eastern, The Fellowship of the Ring, all of the prefatory material, we'll, we'll talk about all of it. It's going to be pretty good. Yes. Uh, when is Storms on the Way, says Chesley in all caps. Um, Storms on the Way will be happening next Tuesday, every Tuesday assuming that there aren't any further scheduling difficulties. The third episode went up to uh, the third episode went up in the podcast feed today. There was some trouble with the website. I guess I was having some trouble uploading the files, but it went up on the website uh, today. So it should be in your podcatcher of choice now already. Uh, the fourth session will be next Tuesday and we'll continue every Tuesday thereafter until we're done with American gods in, I don't know. I don't know. I think I was planning originally 11 Yes, 11 sessions looking at the book. It is now looking like that might be 16, 18, something like that. Maybe, probably 18 sessions on the book, so it'll run a little longer. And then when we're done, you guys, this is top secret, but when we're done with uh, American Gods, when that show has come to an end, when I've finished the book, then I'm pretty much immediately going to go into Prisoner of Azkaban. So that's going to be a kind of late summer kind of book. I'll probably get to that sometime end of July, beginning of August, somewhere around there. We'll launch into Prisoner of Azkaban, and that's going to be a really fun discussion. That's probably going to last 11 or 12 sessions, too. But I mean really 11 or 12 sessions, not the 11 or 12 that I promised for American Gods. Yeah. Lots of American Gods. It's pretty great. Yes. Um... Can we do 3 p.m. Eastern again sometime for Storms on the Way? Yes, Jackie, we absolutely can. Um, I, I'm going to continue to move that around. Um, the schedule for next week, I actually have a couple of things to check, so I haven't even confirmed the time for next week. Um, subscribe to the Point North newsletter over at pointnorthmedia.com. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And I will have, sometime over the weekend, I'll have time to put together an actual Google Calendar with just a production schedule. So you'll have one link that you can check that'll say, oh, hey, here's everything that's planned. This is up to the minute, correct information, and you'll be able to adjust your viewing schedule um, as, as you can, as, as, you know, God, these things just, these things just take forever. Yeah. Wait, when was POA? I tuned out, says it don't connect. Well, see, that's what happens when you miss important information. We're going to get to Prisoner of Azkaban uh, probably late July, early August. It's happening after American Gods. Anyway, 
a Finnish American gods probably take a week off and then come back to start Prisoner of Azkaban. So I'm hoping we're going to get two more books done before the end of the year, uh, alongside the um, alongside the ongoing discussion of Tolkien in there and back again. I should also say too that there was a scheduling change this week. Yesterday, I was supposed to do a Patreon uh, Patreon semi-exclusive uh, Point North one-shot on the 1986 David, David Bowie movie Labyrinth. Uh, that didn't happen yesterday. It is now going to happen tomorrow. So if you've got no plans for tomorrow evening here, U.S. Eastern, U.S. Central kind of time, then I hope that you'll join me because at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, I'm going to do a one-hour uh, Point North one-shot on Labyrinth. I have a lot of things to say about Labyrinth. That's going to be awesome. And then I'm going to follow that up immediately with the Patreon-exclusive Q&A for this week. So if you are a Patreon supporter, and if you're not, there's still time to become one, patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you can hang out with me and listen to me discuss Labyrinth and ask your questions about that. And then we'll segue effortlessly into the Patreon Q&A where you can ask me anything you want. You can ask me Uh, questions about stories you can ask me questions about podcasts about recording setups about my preferred brand of scotch or or whatever you can ask me anything so uh those those shows are always fun they're always really conversational and relaxed and i'm usually drinking and it'll be a lot of fun so definitely check that out friday night party at point north media says angela angela you are completely right and if you can't make it tomorrow, don't worry about it because there's going to be another patreon q a next week and all the patreon q a's that we've already had three maybe Wow, it's only been three weeks, guys, since I launched Point North. Um, the three that we've already had are already available on the Patreon page, so you can go and find those too. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, yes, the, as Lauren is asking here, just to confirm this, uh, if tomorrow at nine is the labyrinth, when is the Q&A? The Q&A will be taking place immediately after at 10 o'clock Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. So I'm just doing two live shows back to back. Both are going to be an hour thereabouts. It's going to be a lot of fun. So just be here on the YouTube channel, I guess. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Guys, thank you all so, so much for joining me. Thank you all so, so much for being with me in this discussion of The Hobbit. This has been an absolute blast. I can't wait to get to the prologue of The Fellowship of the Ring next week, but then we'll have to wait seven more days until we get back to Middle Earth. I'll talk to you all very soon. Until then, thank you and take care. Take care.